For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brent. I'm an elder here at Christ Community Church, and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, As we get into the book of Genesis this morning, I think it's important to orient ourselves a little bit. Orientation, being able to know where you are, is so important. I remember when Jessica, my wife, and I drove into the woodlands for the first time about 15 years ago. And of course, this was the the age before GPS, before Waze and Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever you like to use to get yourself around. But we drove into the woodlands after a long drive down from Nebraska, and we got here late in the evening. It was already getting dark in the area, and of course, we drove uh, into one of the main streets of the woodlands, and we had no idea where we were. Uh, We thought we would look for the house that uh, Jessica was purchasing uh, the next day. We thought we would try to find it uh, here in the woodlands, thought it might be easy to just kind of recognize streets, to see certain landmarks, and of course, we were in for a a rude surprise. We couldn't see anything behind the trees. And of course, with the darkness coming, with night coming, it made it even more difficult. Finally, after about 30 or 40 minutes driving around the woodlands, uh, my wife noticed a water tower. And she had remembered from her trip down here that there was a water tower close to where her house was. And so we thought we had found it. We thought we were close. And all we had to do was find the street name because we knew the address. So we started driving around this water tower, seeing if we could locate the house. And of course, it was the wrong water tower. There's, there's at least two or three here in the woodlands, and so we were at the wrong one. Even that landmark wouldn't help us. And of course, we found ourselves at the end of this you know, hour or maybe hour and a half long a drive around the woodlands uh, where all wayward travelers should find themselves at the end of a long journey at Chick-fil-A. So we, we ended at, at Chick-fil-A off of Lake Woodlands and, and thought we would try again the next day in the light with a map. Now, a map can be really helpful. Getting that 50,000-foot view can be really helpful to orient yourself about where you are. And I think it's really important for us to understand as we read through the book of Genesis that although it is written for us, it is something that we can use and that we must read and know and understand because it's useful for us. It was not written to us. The book of Genesis was written to the Israelites who had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. It was written by Moses to the people of God to help orient them in the wilderness. And I'm not talking about physical orientation, although that could help. It was spiritual orientation as well. Israel had spent 400 years in Egypt, surrounded by gods, all kinds of gods, gods of the sun, god of the moon, god of the sea, god of the rivers, the god of death, the god of fertility, all kinds of deities. That was the culture out of which they were coming. And surrounding them on all sides were the gods of the Babylonians, were the gods of the Assyrians, were the Baals and the Asherahs of the Canaanites. And they were in desperate need of orientation. This God that had saved them out of Egypt, the question must have entered their mind, what kind of God is He? What kind of God are we to worship? And the book of Genesis helps them understand that the God that they are worshiping is fundamentally different than all of the gods around them. And in Genesis 1, we read of that God. 
We read of that different God that is different from all the national gods, all the petty gods of all the little parts of creation. This is a God, a transcendent God that is over creation. The name that we read on, of God in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the general name of God. In, in chapter 1, Moses introduced us to the transcendent God who's over all of creation. The God that's above and beyond. The God that's over the sun. The God that's over the moon. The God that's over the seas. The God that's over the rivers. The one that is over the plants of the field. The ones that makes the, the crops grow. The one God who is over every living creature, including mankind. He's different from all other gods. He's the creator, transcendent God, over and above all things. It's a 50,000-foot view that orients the Israelites in the spiritual wilderness of the culture in which they've come out of and the cultures into which they are going. It helps them understand that their God is different their God is more powerful. He is bigger. But as we enter into chapter 2, especially into verse 4, we get a change of perspective. We've seen the map. We've seen the 50,000-foot view. And now the camera zooms in from the clouds and comes down to earth. There's that feature in Google Maps, if you've seen it, where you can actually take a little figure and you can place them somewhere on the map and suddenly you're at ground level and you can see the buildings and everything around you the way you would if you were standing right there. And here in chapter 2, we get that same kind of shift in perspective. We're not in the transcendent anymore. We're down on the ground level. And we read in verse 4 these words, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Even there, with the name of God, you get a change. You'll read in your Bible as you read that, that verse that this is the first time where God is described as the Lord God. No longer is the word used for Him merely Elohim. Now the words are Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the personal name of God. This is the name given to Moses when he was in the wilderness and he encountered God in the burning bush. God gave him this name. By this name you will call me. By this name you will know me. It's really hard to understand a transcendent God, a God that is over and above everything. But that's not the God that we worship. The God that we worship is not just transcendent. He comes down and is among us. He is knowable. We experience Him. And here we get this change in perspective where after first looking at the whole scope of creation, now we see God enter it and interact with man. He becomes knowable to us. He reveals himself 
to us. And the shift here, as it appears, what we're doing is we're moving into day six of creation. Because the next several verses we're going to be focusing on what we talked about in day six from chapter one, the creation of mankind. And so we're moving from this 50,000-foot view down into the scene itself to see what God is doing in the creation of man. Let's read verses five through seven here. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. It could be tempting here to read into this text that no plants had been created. The, the specific plants that is being talked about here are plants of the field. They're crops. They are things that man makes from the earth as food for himself. None of those had yet grown up in the earth because there was no man, there was no person to cultivate that kind of produce. In verse 6 we read, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I want you to notice some details here. As we change focus from the, the big picture view down to the immediate view, we see this, that the Bible places this at a specific place, moment, and time before there was any man to work the ground, before man. And the world worked a little bit differently before man was here to work the ground. So we're now in time. We're now part of the story. The story is moving on. But here's the important element. God creates man from the dust. From the dust of the ground, God creates man. The orientation that should be clear to Israel and that should be clear to us is that God is our creator. Before man was created, there was no concept of humanity at all. God didn't search amongst the universe of possible beings and say, you know what, I'm going to create a few more of those on planet Earth. He defined what humanity is, and He made us exactly what we are. It is His design. God defines who we are. This is very important to understand. One of the biblical images that you will see frequently throughout the Bible is the image of God the potter. God the potter with his lump of clay forming it and fashioning it into something that he wants it to be. And the image of the clay is the image of us. God is the potter and we are the clay and he's turning us into something. There is a purpose behind his creation for us. There is a design behind his creation of us. There is a story involved. There is meaning to what God is doing. 
He has a purpose. He is creating something. The story of God and man in Scripture is the story of dust to glory. It's a story of dust to glory. God starting with the dust of the earth and then molding it into something that is ultimately glorious. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul concludes with it this way. Even at this point, you see echoes of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's the crucial, crucial line. For we are His workmanship. This is that idea of formation at the beginning here. We are His workmanship. He is crafting something. He is making something. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea of God taking something from the dust and fashioning it into something that is ultimately good, that does good things, carries all the way through all of Scripture, all the way to the end, into the gospel itself. And here we find that idea in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. The gospel is ultimately this, God completing His creation, perfecting it, redeeming it. And the Scriptures, from beginning to end, are the story of that redemption and of God bringing man from dust to glory. And this is so relevant in our culture today. It is so relevant in our culture because think of it this way. When you send your kids to school, if you have kids, or when you went to school, at some level, undoubtedly, you heard and became aware of the materialistic worldview of our culture. You see, we need orientation too, because like the Israelites, we come out of a culture that doesn't believe this. There's a materialism to our culture that says this, essentially, you're nothing but stardust. You're nothing, really, at the end of the day, but a grown-up germ. You see, there is no purpose. Everything is random. There is no design. It just happened that way by chance. There is no story because the author, there is no author of this creation. Nothing has meaning. It really is meaningless. That's the worldview of materialism. The only thing that matters is matter. At the end of the day, the foundations of that philosophy can be summed up with the word nihilism. Nihilism. Nothing-ism. There's nothing to this creation. There's nothing at its foundation. There's nothing at its base. There's no story here. There's no meaning to any of this. Now, the problem, and the culture knows this, with that narrative, and all the early philosophers that came to this conclusion were nihilists. They realized, yeah, there's really nothing to this. And if you press somebody who denies God at the end of the day, they'll probably come to that same conclusion. 
But we can't live that way as humans. We can't live as if there's no purpose. We can't live as if there's no story behind anything. We can't live as if there's no design or, or, or meaning. So we construct alternative worldviews that we try to prop up in its place. And the major one is the idea of humanism. Probably more than any other age, we live in a humanistic age in which the culture places its faith in the indomitable spirit, the indomitable human spirit, our ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make it happen. And the idea here is that, well, if there is no God to tell a story, well, I guess we're just going to have to tell our own story, make up our own meaning, have our own purposes. There's a problem with that, though. That doesn't really work. That doesn't really work because any faith that you place in the human race as a whole is very quickly shaken when you take a look at the human race as a whole. It doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. And everybody realizes that. And so the moment they jump on Facebook or any kind of social media, they're not talking about humanity as a whole. They tend to be talking about their tribe, right? Whether it's conservative or whether it's liberal or whether it's this view or that view. It's not about humanism. We may talk about that as if that's it, that is what it is, but it's really tribalism, right? We draw the circle of what really means to be human ever smaller and smaller and smaller until we've excluded other tribes. And then we get down to where our culture really is. You already see the fracturing of, of humanism all over the place because where our culture really is is not at humanism. It's not a tribalism even. We try to break it down even further to say maybe nationalism, but it's not there either. What is it? It's an individualism, right? Some kind of radical individualism where you create your own story. You write your own story. You have your truth, and everybody has their own truths. They create their own purposes. They have their own designs for their life. They have their own story they're trying to tell. And they have their own meaning. And humanism crumbles because really at its base, there's just nothingism. There's nothing lasting that's telling this story, no ultimate purpose, no ultimate meaning. And so it crumbles. And all the issues that we see in our day, whether they're issues of identity, who are we, who gets to define what we are, whether it's issues of media, as you watch the news and you see that's fake news, whether, whether you're hearing your facts or alternative facts, the question there is, well, who's telling the story? Who gets to decide what facts are correct and which ones are not? But here's the reality. Here's where Genesis 2 is orienting us around. It's saying, you don't tell your own story. You're part of God's story. God tells the story. He has His purposes, He has His designs, and He has His meanings. And we either come into conformity with that 
or we participate in the lie. Those are the options. We are clay in the hands of the potter, and he gives life, our life, and all that we have belongs to him. Genesis orients us there, and it oriented Israel there. It oriented Israel around that principle that they were His. So think about that as Genesis is wandering around the wilderness, trying to decide where it is that they should go. Let's look at else how how Genesis chapter 2 orients Israel around this God they are to worship. In verse 8, we read this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and to keep it. So Israel is wandering around in the wilderness, wondering, where are we going? And God uses this story in Genesis to help orient them. I want you for a moment to see the parallels between Adam's condition and Adam's mission and Adam's purpose and the condition and the purpose and the mission of Israel. You see, Adam receives a place a specific place that is identified by geographical markers. This is a real place, and he receives this place from God. He receives Eden from God. Israel has been promised the promised land. They've been given a place, and God is going to put them there. Adam receives a purpose. He is to serve God in this place by cultivating that garden. He's been given a purpose by God to serve Him in the garden. Israel has been given a purpose to serve God in the promised land. They are to go into that land, root out the evil, root and stem, and plant righteousness there and allow it to grow and cultivate it by following the law. Adam receives provision. God plants in this garden. Trees to care for him, for food. He receives all the things that he would need to survive. Israel is given a land flowing with milk and honey, with fields they did not plant, with vineyards they did not prune, with cities they did not build, and God gives it to them for their provision. This orients them to what they are going to have to accomplish. 
But there are two trees in particular in this garden that I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, I want to make clear as I talk about these two trees, I believe these are historical, real trees. Genesis 2 is not allegory, but it is significant. And what I mean by that is although the trees in the Garden of Eden are not mere symbols, they are significant. They are signs that point beyond themselves to something far more important. And we can't miss that. But let's take a look at the trees as we have them here in Genesis. First, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's look at the name first. The tree, it's a tree of knowledge. Now, at first glance, there's nothing bad about a tree of knowledge, is there? That seems like a really good thing. And I, and I think I know a little something about knowledge. You see, I went to school at the University of Nebraska. And at the University of Nebraska, one of the things that we have, we know a few, thing or two about knowledge, because even at the middle of our football field, we have a big N that stands for knowledge. Okay. So we, we're, we're serious about our knowledge. But knowledge is a good thing, especially the knowledge of good. How can that be bad? This is a good tree. I want to make it clear here that when you think about the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not thinking of a bad tree. It shouldn't be painted in dark colors and, and ominous shades. It's a good tree. It's been put in the garden for a good purpose by a good God. But it's that last word in the name, isn't it, that leaves us with an ominous note that brings the darkness to the name of this tree, the knowledge of evil, the knowledge of evil. I want to read Genesis 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including from the tree of life, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, the way we get knowledge of evil is we disobey the commands of God. And the price of that knowledge is death. The wages of sin is death. And the price of the knowledge of evil is to experience in yourself and for yourself the greatest evil, which is death. The choice is clear. Either eat forever from the tree of life through obedience, have access to that tree of life forever and ever, or the tree of death, disobedience, and the loss of what God has just given to you. He has just breathed into this man life, and he's saying, you disobey me, and I will remove that from you. 
So the orientation here for Israel is very clear, the application. They are about to enter the promised land. And Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is frail and he's dying. He will not enter the promised land with them. When you get to Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's important to note the consequences laid out for Israel if they are obedient. It will go well with them in the land. They will have all kinds of blessings. God will give them prosperity. He will give them long life. He will multiply and multiply their successes in battle, in commerce. He will make them a great nation if they are obedient. If they are disobedient, the second half of chapter 28 is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to read. They're going to lose all of those good things that God had promised them. All of them will be taken away. As a matter of fact, in chapter 30, Moses looks at them and he says this in verse 15. He says this to Israel, See, I have set before you today life and good death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods, and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and the length of days, length of days, that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, swore, dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. You see, this story in Genesis chapter 2 is so important for Israel so that they might know that for them, the law is their tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. It's their tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Israel, if you want to know good, obey my law. If you want evil, if you want to know it, disregard it. Disobey it. Obedience means life. Disobedience means death. The history of Israel is disobedience. It's sin and death. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, Moses knows this, and he tells them, he says to them, I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And God affirms what Moses says. They're going to choose as their first father did and choose death. And that's just not the story of Israel. That's the story of all of us. That's all of our stories. We need this orientation as much as Israel did because that is our story. 
In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And here's, the, here's the, what you need to know about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where we learn the truth about ourselves. We learn who we really are. And here is that truth, as hard as it is sometimes to hear. We are sinners in need of grace. That's what the tree of the knowledge of, of, of good and evil teaches us. That when it really comes down to it, when we really want to know evil, know ourselves. But here's the gospel. We have been given that grace. It is no longer for us the law that is our tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is Christ. In John 14, chapter 1 through 7, or verses 1 through 7, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. He's going to prepare a place, not Eden, not a promised land, but a place with Him forever. You see, there's another place that Jesus is giving His people. And He's going somewhere, He says in verse 4. And you know the way to where and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is just in the in the previous chapter told his disciples where he's going. As a matter of fact, there's there's one moment where uh, Peter can't handle it when Jesus tells him that he's going to the cross. And he rebukes Jesus and says, May it never be. But Jesus says, No, I'm going to the cross for you. So he tells them here, and you know the way to where I'm going, to the Jerusalem and to the cross. But Thomas pipes in here and he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, even though Jesus has just told them. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Thomas asks, where are we going? How will we know the way? What is it we should do? And Jesus says, I am the way. You want to know what to do? Follow me. Jesus says, I am the truth. You want to know what story to believe? Do you want to know who's telling the right story? Do you want to get past all the fake news, all the alternative facts? 
there's one story that matters. It's Christ and Him crucified. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, this is the cross that we preach. It is foolishness to the world, but to us is the wisdom of God. It is the way. And then he says, I am the life. I am the tree of life. We just had communion this morning. We eat the fruit of the tree of life every time we gather. Follow me. The choice is stark for us, just as it was for Adam and Eve, just as it was for Israel. Follow me. Believe in me. Receive life. Outside of me, there is only death. That's the choice that has been laid to us. And then he continues... And he talks about knowledge. If you know me, Thomas, you know my Father. And it's my Father who is good. You want to know, have a knowledge of good? Know me. I'm also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Know me and you can know good. The command is follow Christ, follow Him to the cross. That's where He's going, right? He's going to the cross. Look to the cross. And here is what you find there if you will follow Christ to His cross and believe in Christ and Him crucified. Here is what you will find there. That the tree upon which Christ died, that's the way Peter describes it in Acts chapter 2. It's the tree on which He died. The tree upon which Christ died is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that tree, when we look at the cross, we see two things. One, we see the good man crucified, the righteous Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, crucified for our sins. That's the second thing. The sins of the whole world placed upon Him at the cross. There is no clearer example in all the world of good and evil in the same act. The cross is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil realized. And the one we read about in Genesis chapter 2 points forward to that, to that moment. And that is the majesty of God's revelation in His Scripture. How it all fits together. Dozens of of authors over thousands of years driving towards writing about one event the cross of Christ, outside of which there is no life. But the tree upon which Christ died is also the tree of life. When we believe in Christ and His work on the cross, as Jesus says in chapter 14 of of John, believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. When we do that, we have life. You see, we learn the truth about our God at the tree of life, at the cross. 
This has very practical implications for our lives. It may seem at some level like it's all high and, and, and deep philosophical or theological speculations or discussions, but it has very real and practical applications to our lives. And here's why it matters. That first line of John chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, let your heart, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. We live in a world full of trouble. We live in a world that is acquainted very well with evil. There is tragedy all over the world. Viruses springing up in China. Floods, disasters, epidemics of all sorts, cancers, diseases, wars. Death comes in a million different ways. It is a world of sorrows. And even when we leave the abstract world, we get more specific with human sin. It's impossible to go a day without another lie being told, without more scandals that are made public, without murders, shootings, the nastiness of politics, abortion. I'd be remiss if I passed this week without noting Right to Life Week. And what is it, the 60th anniversary of Roe versus Wade or, or something like that? And even more personal, even closer to home, affairs, drug abuse, pornography. And when we leave even the abstract of other people's sins, we get even closer to home with our own sin. You see, our most intimate knowledge with sin shouldn't come from just looking at your neighbor. It should come from looking at yourself from being painfully aware of your own failings, of your own sin. And if your hope is in some kind of vague humanism to save you, or the hope that your tribe is eventually going to win out at the ballot box or, or here or there in the culture wars, if your hope is in yourself, in your own individual efforts, then these troubles that I'm referring to are going to destroy you and leave you in despair. They'll expose that there is no foundation there, and all your hope will be swept away. However, a hope built on the transcendent God who created everything, on Yahweh Elohim, revealed to us in Jesus Christ is a sure hope. The good news is that we can know the transcendent God who created us at the cross. I know I didn't finish my story about uh, traveling here in the woodlands. When I arrived here that day, after we finished and found ourselves at Chick-fil-A, we were sitting at Chick-fil-A having a, a nice meal when I got a phone call from my mother telling me that my father had passed away that afternoon. My foundations were shaken. But I'll tell you what, they were not crushed. 
They were not crushed because fortunately my father, who up to that point had been the one who had oriented me spiritually, had done so in such a way that he had given me a strong foundation in the gospel. And it was because of that strong foundation that it was over the next weeks and months and, and years after that event that as I reflected upon it and other things that were happening in the world and my own sin, that the cross became bigger and more important. It became more of an, I gained more knowledge about my evil and the goodness of my God and the life that is in Christ. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, there's one final mention of the tree of life. There are no more mentions of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know evil and we know good at the cross. But there is one more mention of the tree of the knowledge of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. This is a description of heaven. Also on the either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The final state of affairs is a place, a paradise, where there is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's only the tree of life. I place before each one of you today the same choice that's always placed before each of us. Choose life or choose death. Believe in Christ. Follow Him. Trust Him. Outside of Him, there is no life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy, Lord. You, you teach us. Above all things, You are a good God. And because You are a good God, You are a great teacher. And Lord, in Your wisdom and in Your mercy, You have taught us Your goodness by at times giving us a clear understanding of how we lack that goodness. Lord, I pray that for each person here, they will choose life, that they will believe you and believe in your Son, and that they will look upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the cross, and they will see their own sin, and your great, your great salvation, and that for them, the cross will become a tree of life and their firm foundation and hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.